Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Survivor 46 is here and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Valladares, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcast. Yo, yo. Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome back to my show, The Houseless Podcast. Uh, I'm Peter Agostin. I'm the host and the producer, uh, CJ Stewart. That's the editor of the show. And if this is your first time listening, thank you so much for tuning in and checking it out. You know what I'm saying? Uh, and if you're a repeat listener, I sincerely appreciate the time and the effort uh, you put into uh, bending an ear to this thing. So um, trying to get the I'm looking at the SoundCloud page here, which is at uh, soundcloud.com backslash the houseless podcast. It's we're almost up to 500 followers. You know, it's a small number and the relative scale of things. But to me, I find it to be a very significant benchmark. As of right now, when I'm recording this, we're at 494. So if you got a page or if your homie has a page or if your niece or nephew got one, just get on there and subscribe to the houseless podcast. It's one way I know I can interact with folks and it's a good way to um, share our many episodes I've been doing this now for a year and a half. A lot of great, candid, um, and very revealing, unique, long-form conversations that I have with people in the music biz and, and, and elsewhere. You know, it's uh, you know people I know and work with. So get on there and subscribe. It would mean a great deal to me. We're fastly approaching 50,000 plays uh, at SoundCloud, too. So shout out to everybody that tunes in that way if you listen on google play stitcher apple podcasts anyway any of these third-party sites thank you however you can obtain it it means a lot to me that you spend any time checking it out and listening today's episode was with an incredible writer a guy i've known for a long time mosi reeves so mosi and i go way back uh he is a music journalist um currently you know, contributing to Rolling Stone, Spin, the East Bay Express, NPR. Uh, we know each other from back in the Herb magazine days. And briefly, I wrote for the Miami New Times, uh, whom Mosi uh, was a music editor. He kicked me down a job uh, uh, way back in the day. But he's also contributed to The Wire, Village Voice, Vibe, uh, Billboard, The Source, MTV, um, San Francisco Chronicle and many many other places so we just riff this is a conversation we had um, earlier this winter 
and I wanted to share it with y'all. He was briefly in New York City, and um, so we caught up at the crib, and I hadn't seen him in a long time, and we just, like, you know, talked music, and I, you know, talked about his career a little bit, so it's a good, like, music journalist kind of riff sesh, you know what I'm saying? And um, it was fun. About like a year or two ago, he put out this book, self-published, called Notes on Post-Millennial Rap. And it's like a collection of essays and features uh, on a whole range of, of topics in hip-hop and the history, uh, in journalistically speaking. So I copped that when he first put it out, or actually when he was put on a pre-sale for it. And I know that he's got a couple of copies left. So after we um, wrapped this conversation I'm about to get into with y'all... He was like, listen, like I had, I got a couple copies. So if any of you guys out there are interested in, in picking up this book, which he self-published and otherwise is essentially out of print, you can hit me up here at the podcast. Either get at me at Twitter, at HouselessPod. You can uh, find my contact at the SoundCloud page link as well. And um, let me know and I can arrange a sale of the book to you. So if you're a collector of music books like me, um, and interested in hip-hop journalism and all that stuff in between notes on post-millennial rap by Mosey Reeves, uh, you can grab through me. I can kind of middleman this thing for you. So, yes, why don't we hop into this conversation real quick? Hey, it's only here on the Houseless Podcast with your host, Peter Gossin. Please don't forget to subscribe if you got a friend out there that might be into this. You know, a lot of people like a lot of different kinds of podcasts. I was I ran into someone last night. They're like, oh, what kind of podcast do you like listen to? I'm like, well, I make one, and uh, you can check it out. It's called The House List. Uh, you might like it, you know? So anyway, do it and help me get the word out and continue to entertain you guys with these kind of conversations. So let's get into my joint real quick with Mosey Reeves here on The House List. But, I mean, at the same time, it's not like... Uh, uh, I mean, since we're jumping right into it, I haven't seen you in probably 15 years. Right. Um, yeah, Miami. Miami was the last time yeah, I saw you. So, and that was when you, because you're not from there, though, right? You're from the Bay. Yeah, I'm originally from Sacramento. Okay, because we started, I mean, I knew you before Miami, but you were really working there, writing there regularly for the New Times, right? Yeah, that, I started out in Oakland. Okay. And I was at the Bay Guardian, and I knew you because of her magazine. Right. Then I went out to Miami, and I was the music editor at the Miami New Times. Right. It's interesting, too, in a way, because so I just talked to Jeff Weiss, like, yeah, day before yesterday, and we were sort of talking about this, you know, now that the LA Weekly got bought, and the voice, obviously the Village Voice, uh, got you know, dismantled or whatever. And they're owned by voice media. But, um, and I'm not an expert on this whatsoever, but I do know that there's some sort of connection between the new times and like voice media. And I think at one point in time, at least the LA weekly was, was owned by new times. Right. Is that, do you know, right. this trajectory? Well, there was voice media and then they sold it to a different company because of the back pages. Scandal, oh yes. Back pages. Where right. back pages, had sex ads. Right. And there was this whole thing about prostitution and, you know, predators. And and then New Times decided to keep back pages. Right. And then they sold all of the papers. 
I don't, they sold most of the papers. I don't think they sold all of them. They sold most of the papers, and then that became Voice Media. Well, it was already called Voice Media. New Times was already Voice Media, but then they sold the papers. Um, I can't remember which way it was. Right, right. Were you so you had already left New Times by the time all this? Yeah, happened, I was right? already gone by then. Like I was at Creative Loafing in Atlanta when New Times bought Voice Media. Right. Yeah, and I remember like. People asking me, oh, yeah, how is New Times? I'm like, well, all you guys are going to get fired. <laughs> and, you know, like, there's all these, like, old dudes in, in, in Village Voice, you know, and they yeah. fancy themselves as the king of media, and, like, doesn't matter, you know, New Times, that's how they do. They they buy the paper, they fire everybody, they install their own people, and that's pretty much what happened. Yeah, I know, mean, which is, it's not necessarily a surprise, you know. And it's, it's funny because as I was talking about this with Jeff too, I started to realize how that's the same model that like when you see with, um, especially in years past with like commercial radio, like when a program, like a station that was like, that was like, especially for hip hop or whatever, uh, urban music that would then be sold and just flip into either like talk radio or country or something like that. And like all these regular normal people that would that would be a part of their day-to-day lives you know the same way a paper would be are just like kind of left in the cold all the people that work there are fired and shit and it's just you know just corporate acquisitions you know um not to say that i don't mean to necessarily start the conversation with you like that but you have been you've been in the in the business of writing as a journal and being a journalist for you know two decades plus right yeah, I started out in Sacramento in 1996. For the Sacramento... And this is for the Sacramento for the Observer. What? Sacramento Observer. Oh, okay, cool. It's this community... It's this black community in East... And I used to cover, like, cotillions and community events and weddings and, you know, the wow. typical, like, neighborhoods of... Then I started freelancing for the Sacramento News and Review. And that's when I started writing about music. So really started like reporting, like I was almost like a reporter. Yeah, I started out more as like a regular community reporter. Oh, yeah. And I was buying, like, this is back when like you could call up record labels and say, hey, I really like your label. I really... So I did that with Rockus. Uh-huh. Like I was a big rock fan, and you know I was I was just calling them up, like asking like really stupid questions, just like to get them <laughs> on the phone and be able to right. talk with them. You know, like yeah, you know, when is this twelve inch coming out, and what, how can I get this one? And you know, just making up stuff. Right. And I was and you buying. Got to start some, those relationships with them somehow, right? Yeah, and I mean, this is back. When you would literally like. I mean, I remember. I remember when I first talked to Catherine Fraser in Biz Three. Right. She's known for. I mean, now she's known for working with Relax, but at right. the time she was known for all of LP stuff at the Relax. Oh yeah, yeah. She was like, yeah, basically was there like in-house publicist too for the label, right? For Def Jux. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Oh, like I remember, like talking to her in two thousand. And she literally, I like, just talked to me for like an hour and a half. Like oh, wow. that's, like that's how it was. Then, like you would talk to people on their own, right? And you just have these really long, engaging conversations. Not, oh, we're like it's all email. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I mean, it's a totally different game. It was a lot... I mean, obviously, technology and time, everything changes, you know. But, I mean, I think, especially if you started in the late 90s into right now, I mean, it's every year there was some sort of shift, some kind. You know, both, like, trend-wise, hip-hop. I mean, because you've done a lot of hip-hop coverage. I mean, right? There's, by the lion's share of your writing has been... Yeah, I would say the majority of it has... Up, right. like I have covered indie rock in the past, right? Like all of the up with people stuff that came out in the late two thousands, like What's young that? folks and uh, you know, right. like all this really super like poppy mainstream. Like that's kind of when I wasn't interested in indie rock anymore. But like right. late nineties, early two thousands, I was covering indie rock. I used to cover electronic music, especially house music. You know, but yeah, like you said, the main stuff that I've always been known for. So when, how did you, if we met kind of through Herb Magazine, at least becoming familiar with each other's names, I, I think, I guess, right? That's pretty true. Yeah. And yeah. Um, amongst... I think you actually started at Herb Magazine, like I was looking through some... Bad right. Oh yeah, that was my first place I, essentially the first place I got, first magazine for sure. Um I did a, some like college newspaper album reviews at Virginia Tech at a, at a place called the Collegiate Times when I was all of like 16 years old or something like that. Because um, it really, for me, it sort of started at college radio. When I was in high school, I did college radio and then I got more adept to like talking to labels and then, and then really through the music groups, the rec dot music, hip hop music, uh, those like news groups I think you know what I'm saying like yeah I remember those like I didn't do the news groups but I did do the um SOH board oh right yes yeah another classic uh community yeah uh, huh um yeah so I mean but Herb was a real starting point for a lot of writers I mean Oliver Wang really gave me my uh um first break you know he was a, a singles editor or a music editor if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, Wazoo, John Monica, who's over the New Time now. Yeah. Dave um, Tompkins. Yeah. Who no, else? Dave Tompkins actually, did he actually start there? I think it was at Spin. And, you know, he actually started it up. He started it up in like 93 or 94 or wow. something. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, I mean, these guys were really, you know, to for me to have grown up like in a small town, there weren't, there weren't like, there was no sort of sophisticated conversations you can have with anyone about hip-hop music as far as, like, intellectualizing it or analyzing it, you know? So it was whatever print media you had at the time. So to see, like, these guys who, were, you know, would be essentially your contemporaries, too, and everyone has their own, you know, stylistic approach, um, was a pretty amazing era, I feel like, maybe 90, the, those early to mid ninety years because everyone would then splinter off into really like depending on what how what they aspired to you know would go on to landing bigger jobs or professor type shit or obviously books and you wrote a book as well which i like to talk about um but yeah i guess you know what i'm interested too is looking back at that period of time for you like how you're um like how you look at it now because this is 20 years ago basically so, as far as like what your workload was, and you know what you were covering at Herb, and you know what we were all doing. 
looking back on it now, like, I feel like I came in at the tail end of that golden era. When you really look at the golden years of rap, right. that's kind of, it, I mean, I would say that goes from 93, right. that's when you start seeing a lot of the street rap 12 inches, York, that's right. when Soul Side happens. Right. Yeah. And then Raucous is kind of the that's kind of when the music industry at large becomes aware of it and it becomes this whole underground versus mainstream phenomenon. Yeah. In ninety nine is kind of the peak of that. Right. And you and were then, covering stuff though continuously throughout all of that though. Well no, I mean I, I would say I started when I started it was kind of the tail end of that, like ninety eight, okay. ninety nine. 2000, that's when Def Jet starts. And then when Jay-Z's, like, the blueprint came out, right. I feel like that marked the end. That marked the end of the general media class being interested in underground rap. Like, I remember seeing Oliver Wang write about the blueprint and saying, well, you know, this is kind of like, the, a resol- it's, it felt like a resolution because mm. Jay Z was using like all these like classic beats and classic right. you know. But at the same time, just the critics felt like what he was doing was a lot stronger than whatever was going on in the other round from a from a right. from a lyrical perspective. Like now, we could have a whole other conversation about that. Like well, how to go well, like would you say not to interrupt you, but would you say that I think it's an interesting point that you make, especially with that album, because there was that was maybe also a, a, a maybe a fork in the road for writers too, who would then maybe you know abandon some of the as the you know quote unquote like underground or indie hip hop uh, genre started to really become like top heavy and sa- overly saturated. Those guys, those writers too, would then either adopt, either graduate to like more like a New York Times style of writing where it's it's general pop coverage, or they would, you know, um, go completely into you know exploring more genre and stuff. I don't, I I just noticed where there there was a divide where, and and if you're a working writer too, you want to kind of you go where the work is too. I mean, to a certain degree. no, I mean, I would agree with that. Like, I feel like, I feel like the Jay-Z album marked that road. Right. For me, personally, I continue to cover underground stuff. Like, that's when I started listening to a lot of the L.A. stuff. Right. Like, Bush Driver and Shakespeare's and Rhyme Sayers and right. And even Dilla, you know, like... People weren't paying attention to Dilla when he was in those during those years, and of course now, like he's a god. But right, right. I remember when Dilla died in '96. Fat, uh, you know, who was like the first guy he rapped with, was like, "Why didn't you guys love him when he was here?" You know, and that's that's kind of what you know. Dilla didn't really get respected by the music industry until the very end, like like right, like '95. Right, right. That's 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 when he started working with. I'm sorry. Yeah. 2000, yeah. Like 2005. Right. Because right. he died in February 2006. Right. right. Oh, 2005. He's right. living with Common. 
Yeah. Like he gets right. placements on comp album. Yeah. Like and he starts he and he gets you know he started he started to work in the music industry again. But like there's that yeah. whole period when he was putting out stuff on European labels and right. put, putting out stuff on ABB and like right right the mainstream rap industry didn't care you know. Um, yeah, it's interesting because I think. At first, maybe when Slum Village came out, the press didn't know what to do with them, too, in a way. I don't. I think you look back at those records, and yeah, because of Dilla's overall canon of work, people somehow um, have found new appreciations for, for Slum Village. I think when it, it was definitely like for the heads, a certain kind of head um, got those tapes, especially the Fantastic Volume 1, and that was like a thing. But I think that the press didn't, and like the general consensus of people outside of like hardcore heads maybe were like they were first focused on the rappers in the group you know what I'm saying like um, well, I could be wrong the, I think it's subjective too but you know. well with the slum build, um the thing um, was that the beats were amazing right but the raps were all of these pit raps right and that really threw a lot of people off right. like I remember they did the Thelonious track um, yeah yeah and that's when Common used F word, and he got right. a lot of criticism for that. Like oh, I remember wow. seeing Common, I remember seeing Common in San Francisco, and um, he literally made an effort to edit that word out of his song. Um, out of show. Yeah, because like, you know, this you know this is the kind of stuff made him not shut up in a music story. I wrote about it actually. About like, that particular moment. Yeah, he did a show where, like, he did a show where he saw, like, two guys kissing. It was just, oh, and, right. like, so he went into this homophobic freestyle. Right. Oh, like, wow. and people were like, just, whoa, what is this? Wow. And man. then around time, I saw Ghostface Killer do the same thing. Where he's like, get this F shit out of here. Right. You know, and, like. Oh, I actually wrote a story about that for the Bay Guardian. Where like, there's this whole under—I wrote about this whole undercurrent of homophobia right. among conscious rappers. Okay, you yeah, know. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, going back to Slum Village, I think that's why people are so confused by them because you know they expected a most deaf rapping over this kind of beast. They didn't expect like mid Midwest pit raps. Right, right, right. Yeah, which now I think people—they've actually. It's like was maybe a little ahead of its time because people might prefer. I mean, now if you look at whatever the contemporary shit is now, I mean, it fits a lot more seamlessly into the, into what's happening now than. I don't think it was ahead of its time. I just think that there was some cultural mixing in their music. Right, right, right. That right. you know, normally if you can hit raps, you. I mean, you expect like do or die or something. You right, know what I mean? Right. Like you don't expect. Like these really progressive content beats with pit raps, right? You know, and but now that we know more about the genre, and there's so much more than music up there, we can point to other moments in history before Slum Village. Yeah, yeah. Like where, like whether it's the beat nuts, right. or whether it's like certain tracks that Pete Rock and Seal Smooth did. You know, where right. like they're they're doing the same kind of street stuff. But the music is still progressive. Right, right, right. Another group I know that you tracked from their inception on is the Anticon dudes. And those are guys that I've known for a long time as far as, far as just like maybe 
knowing them since they started, but but as a writer in the Bay, you know, they, they had their own lane and their own movement, obviously, that would end up being pretty influential as the years would go by. But you wrote some, I mean, you wrote a few different pieces of them over the years, right? Yeah, actually, Wazoo got first. Okay. Like, he did this, he did this big story on them, or The Wire. Yeah, for The Wire. They yeah, the actually co- was got, it the cover? It wasn't a cover. They did do it a, was, I think they had a cover at one point, later. In, well, Clout Dead. Clout Dead. That did, cover. Right. But he did a story on them in early 2000, or late 1999. He uh-huh. ended up getting their distribution deal out of that oh, because wow. people saw the story. Right. It's kind of like the same way that Nas did the Odd Future story, and that's like foot wire, and that's right. kind of when it put it. So it's the same kind of thing. But the thing with Anik um, is that they were so left field. Yeah. I still think, I still think that people. Don't that you? Oh yeah, I agree absolutely. I think in the moment too, because they were so seemingly different, yet I guess you know a part of the hip hop genre. You know that they were definitely people um, maybe misunderstood some of the projects. They were probably they were young guys too. You know you got to think that when you're like twenty one years old and shit. Like you're a lot of it is there's still like this super competitive. Kind of, um, you know, they they were they kind of were had like you know just did their own thing, impervious to what people thought. But there were some pretty remarkable, especially like I think Cloud Dead was pretty cutting edge for its time for sure, very progressive. I think the um, the Cloud Dead album is kind of a point. Right. Us. Oh, I think Soul's album. A bottle of humans or selling live water. Selling live water. Yeah, selling live water was yeah incredible piece of work. But overall, I think a lot of the racial issues, also the fact that soul is crazy, you know, and <laughs> all of that just kind of all of that. I mean, you know, you know, DRLP, you know, like yeah. I mean, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that sort of was a, a benchmark, if you will. It sort of, it definitely catalog was a catalyst for a lot of different things. I think that that point on, which was interestingly enough, like they're basically like the label's first record and stuff, you know. Yeah, that was their. I mean, that was their big stem. But you know, but then when, but then when LP came out with Little Trip, you know, which basically eviscerates all, right. that gave a lot of died in the wool hip fans. To dismiss old label, you know, and right, right. and um, is doing all these amazing things as far as mixing indie rock and ambient electronics and right. rap music, you know. But because LP clown the shit up, so it's like, oh yeah, what are soft? They're punks. They don't know what they're doing. You know, it was just it. They're 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 way more than that, you know. And unfortunately, yeah. I don't think that. I don't. I don't think that hip hop critics have really caught up to that fact, and also the fact that so much of what they did is descended from the shapeshifters and freestyle fellowship. Sometimes people think that there's some oh, biting those guys, or like, right. yeah, well, they're the white guys that got all the fame. But meanwhile, what about these other guys? And it's not about this. It's all about the lineage. You know right, what I mean? Right, like right. those two groups came first. But then Anakin helped push it forward. Right, 
right. you know, oh, if you can appreciate it in that context, then you can appreciate what it did. Right. I think, you know, uh, kind of close to that period of time is when I was doing my Culturama thing. And I was, you know, there was a moment when I was, you know, anticipating us talking when I sort of was thinking about if I should have like a stack of fucking magazines in front of me because there's obviously lots your work is documented in like countless print publications um, as is as is mine for, for a certain window of time yours is your your work load has continued on much much longer and further than mine but uh, when I was writing I was also doing Culturama which is basically just like a, a video zine or whatever it was a compilation of music videos I still have them yeah, yeah, absolutely. I did seven volumes of it too, but you did a story on it in Herb, if you recall. I remember, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which I wrote about Chiu and I wrote about Hero Matsuo. Yes. He used to uh, do um, Practice Video day, Magazine. Day by Day. What was the name of the record label he did? Oh, Hero, DJ Hero did, Mar- he worked for Mary Joy. Right, he did Mary Joy, yeah. and he also. Was Vect Omega on Shingo 2's projects. Right, right. And then he did Practice Video Magazine. Right, right. Yeah, so that was like one of very few pieces that were ever written on that, too. So, I mean, that was a million years. That was like in 2000 or something. So, obviously, it was a long time. 2002. Yeah. Was it? Okay, cool. Yeah, because I was working on something else. Like, I don't know if you remember this movie, but um, nobody knows my name. Nobody knows my name. Yeah. It's by Rachel Ramis. And she put it out in 1999. Uh-huh. And it's basically about the struggles of women in rap music. Right. There's one moment in that movie where it's sort of an unforgettable moment for me. Like, right. I write about it often where, like, a, not it wasn't a Pony B, but, um, gosh, she she did the track, I'm coming. Um, um Tila? T Love, right. so another she, so, herb uh, alumni. Yeah, yeah, she was she was an editor there for yeah. a while. Yeah. Oh, Rachel's interviewing T Love about career, and T Love's just talking, just talking, and then she just bursts out in tears and she starts crying. Wow. And it's like, it's not like she's it's not like she's sobbing like like me and you were talking, right. and she just burst out crying, and it's wow. like no other moment from no more no other moment in hip hop sums up sums up the plight of women in hip hop quite like that right. it's just it's just awful you know oh absolutely yeah oh like so as you know I was, I was I've, been, I've been working on that recently and as a result of that I was going back and reading a story that I did on you when you called right, to right, right. yeah because was a, there was a few different like um, sort of documentary style yeah. things that were in that piece but wait what are you working on now how does it apply to what you're working on right now well, I've been writing a lot about just women and rap music. Oh, cool. You know, and, you know, it's it's a trail of tears, you know. Um, I mean, you know, hip-hop is responsible for a lot of great things, and hip-hop is responsible for, like, not-so-great things. But sure. I think the one thing that's completely unforgivable for me is the way that they have marginalized women in the music, you know, um... You look at soul music, you know, and, you know, for James Brown, there's Aretha Franklin, you know, and for Donny Hathaway, there's Minnie Ripperton. I mean, there's, it's, it's, it's near gender equal in terms of the amount of artistic product you can find in soul music. But in hip hop, it's like, 
ever since the late 90s, there's just been this marginalization of them into thoughts and, you know, and dimes and and video models. And it's wrong. They're, right. Absolutely. Yeah. So is this a broader piece that you're writing or is it more just you're consciously for, for individual um, pieces, articles, or I artists. Some, I, I mean, I'm thinking of one piece in particular that yeah. I can't get into. Okay. But is it I've still? Been, is it yet to be? Yeah, it's yet to be published. Okay. Uh, there's. I've been. I've just been trying to write a couple of pieces about that. Just because, from a historical perspective, it's just so bad, and also from a current perspective, you have a whole wave of women who are making rap music now, and they kind of hit the glass ceiling at a certain point, you know, and. Okay. I think it's about changing the consciousness of the rap music listener, or oh, the more accepting of female voices. So, who would you who would be a good example of that right now? Would you say like Rhapsody? Like rap- I slept on her album though, so I might be coming from a somewhat misinformed place. I haven't, I have to be honest, I haven't peeped out the album, but I know that people I've seen how people have been reacting to it. Yeah, it's a good album. I mean, it's kind of. It's kind of better than some of its parts, you okay. know. Um, that's a couple of good racks, yeah. You know, gotcha. but people are so hungry right at this point, you know. Right. Like, you know, everybody wants someone or some women to just come out and you know just put the flag in the game. And you know, Cardi B is great, but I mean, we've seen that we've seen Cardi B's in the past, you know. Um, right. I, I I think at this point we just want an expansion of all types of voices, not these kind of voices they fit into the current period i mean those are good too like whatever is you know i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to say we should limit artists by any means or by any by any um by any paradigm you know but yeah sure we did you know the thing with people like rhapsody and like uh, rock right. you know and right. Princess nokia and mm-hmm. you know go on and on is that they kind of just expand the types of women voice here yeah, which is a good thing. It's good. Absolutely. Um, yeah, interesting. I mean, no, I, I mean, I, I, I would love to see what that is. So uh, I guess by you seeing that, too, I was curious, too, obviously you're here in New York, but you're, you st- you're still holding down the bay, right? You're still, you're in SAC or where? Oakland. In Oakland. So, um, but you've been working, writing while you've been here the whole time. So are you just working on random projects that are due? Or yeah. Are you, I mean, are you, you know, here for a reason for it's writing? It's the year-end list. Right. You know, it's year end season, and yeah. or you know, you know, you write twenty blurbs about your favorite album or favorite track. That's pretty much. What I'm doing. And are you? It's for a bunch of different places too. Yeah, right now I'm writing for NPR and okay. and then uh-huh. sometimes people. Okay. Cool. So yeah, that's the current slate, and you know, so I got homies your... in the Bay Area. Like if I do stuff for them, like East Bay Express, and yeah. So what, I want to talk about that really quickly too. But so with the the year end list for you, what I mean is there? Can you give me a taste of what where you are ending this list, ending this year with? I mean, just just hot takes because I'm kind of like a junkie for that type of shit now. Because a lot of the times I'll sleep on some of these albums because they just don't necessarily speak to me. Now there's some probably some incredibly amazing records that I slept on for one intentionally for one reason or another because I think sometimes things are a little over um, emphasized by the masses and by the press so there's certain records that might top that list that I was like I'll wait I'm gonna listen to that in like three years from now just so 
it cools off and I don't have but that's my own personal you know weird uh, approach to it but if you're doing now we're, if we're talking about hip hop so um, now I'm not going to make you force you to give me your top 10 but you could at least maybe splash out your top 3 or something as far as full lengths go would you be well, well, are I mean, you willing to do that I mean, I don't know if there's a top three. You know, there's what were highlights. I'm thinking about like Kendrick album, obviously, and what is it? Is the Migos album. Um, okay, yeah. I mean, those are kind of the ones that everybody is citing. I guess as far as I guess I'm. Is I guess as far as trends that I'm thinking about, I'm thinking about the current selection style of S O U L E C T I O N style of, of style of rap music like Smino and Gold Link. That's kind of an interesting and I don't know how I don't know how I don't know how well it's gonna age. Like I remember back in the mid two thousands there was like the okay player school of rap, like Tanya Morgan and and Little Brother and mm-hmm. you know, nobody talks about that stuff anymore. Like I'm I'm curious if, if this current wave of selection rap is gonna make a bigger impression in the consciousness than that stuff did well that's debatable i think but maybe something will come will sprout out of that would would be the next thing because if you i mean just when you mentioned little brother i I immediately remembered how drake kind of like fashioned himself to them for a hot second too if i'm not mistaken no you're right i mean like like when when drake did his comeback season tape which was the tape did where people started to take him seriously right like a lot of that tape was based around like the whole Houston rap and, right. and then Little Brother. Yeah. And he actually shouted out Little Brother and Jay Dilla on his So Far Gone tape. Right. So yeah, I mean, they were obviously a big influence on him. And I'm not singling out that one group as a group that people you know, didn't pay attention to. That's obviously the one. But there was a whole other mass of groups of course, along with with them, that didn't yeah. necessarily make the impact that they should have. Right, and I think you know if you if you you know there's a couple different ways to look at it too. As one as a journalist, and then like say the people, the managers and the label type people that are on the other end of it, like whoever was commandeering uh, Spit Kicker and all that stuff. Where there's obviously a package. This is their stable of artists that they're working with. So let's get them out there in whatever way we can. Now. If you're in that position, then you kind of have to kind of you shift along with the trends to be able to keep work, keep revenue streams coming in, too. So because you can't pummel people with the same stuff every year and because, the you know, obviously the audience ages out, they they shift and change, too. So, no, of course. I mean, it's I'm, not to say that people in, in Little Brother aren't there. They all splintered off and now have their own projects, too. You know? Right. I mean. When I when I speak about impact, I'm not necessarily talking about record labels like that's a whole other conversation. Of course, I'm just talking more about the comment that right. creates these narratives of what hip hop is and what it represents and who matters and who doesn't matter. I think Little Brother, yes. I mean, it seems like people give it grudging respect. Like, yeah, you know, we know, you know, I, you know, a lot of a lot of writers from my era kind of hated on Little Brother, like mm-hmm. for various reasons you know but there are other groups like strange food project and zion i and you know again tanya morgan you know there's like a whole wave of 
groups from that mid 2000s era that's probably for me like the last interesting stage of what was classically underground hip hop you know mm -hmm. after they kind of faded away then it became something different you know it became about you know blog rap and you know we can go into this whole other thing but right. as far as what we were talking about earlier underground rap like that's so full okay player rap along with the stuff that was coming out of LA which but the 2000 mid 2000s it wasn't was it wasn't as interesting it was as it turned into 2000s in my right. opinion sure but except for bus drivers um you have a black tangent which is an amazing album that is a great album you know but yeah again the, the okay player was kind of like the last stage and then you get in and i asked tanya morgan about this and they were like yeah you know we kind of we kind of missed out because we were in a transitional period you know they came out right when it was transitioning to blog rap and you had blue and you had all like the detroit guys moving out to la and so there's this fusion of detroit and la yeah and that's the stuff that kind of rejuvenated you know, non-mainstream rap. You had, a, you know, you, there's a famous XXL cover with Blue and B.O.B. and, and Ash. Uh, yeah, which was like, was freshman, that not the very first freshman? That was the second freshman. Okay. Actually, the first one was like all these like mixtape street rappers like Saigon and that right. kind of stuff. And New York was pushing that obviously because they didn't want, they were trying to push this as a movement, but right. it just didn't happen. But then the second ever was like, you know, Kid Cootie and Ezra Roth yeah, and like, like and Blue and like that was that was the famous cover right, where like right. you know it's like the rejuvenation of, of pop rap in right, non mainstream right. rap. Right, right. And Tiny Morgan should have been part of that, but they came a little bit too soon. Right, right. Yeah, I mean there was there's a clear divide between the that stuff that came a little too soon and the next class, I guess if you will, of artists because even on an industry side the trajectory of their exposure and how they like climbed up the the ladder of of as far as touring and selling records and you know music videos and stuff they're like in a in a class by themselves because that that then created the model that now you see with you know all the trap superstars too like i feel like in a way I mean, no you're right i mean i remember I mean, Big Sean was kind of considered part of this at first, especially right. when he was doing his finally famous tapes. Yeah. You know, and he kind of represents oh, a lot of that very open-minded, like, blog rap kind of turn it to pop rap. Totally. You know, but I remember seeing him in 2010. This is before his... This is right around the time that my last came out. Oh, I guess either the end of 2010 or the beginning of 2011. And right. first of all, it was since, like, you know, it was like a sold out show. And people were like rapping along to all the songs. Right. And he performed for like an hour and a half, you know, and, they, and it to get, the crowd was engaged the entire time. And I'm like, you know, this is amazing. Like this guy has never put out a major label album. You know, but he has this crowd going for like an hour and a half, you know, and right. I mean, that speaks to the testament of him as an artist. We can get into a debate about, you know, the quality of his music. Sure, but sure, sure. That speaks to the testament of him as an artist, but it also speaks to the testament of that movement that you were describing. Like, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. by the, that, uh, that whole blog rap thing had just elevated into something much more greater from a commercial perspective than the, um, than the previous OK Play. Right, right. 
You know, an interesting example of that, too, is like currency. So currency sort of is like toggled back and forth between both worlds in a way where he like, I'm just, it just reminded me as you were saying it, because, you know, first you, you would go to like Wiz Khalifa, who obviously turned into like mega pop star. Well, the thing about just, Wiz Khalifa is that he kind of started off as a casting own. Okay. Like, if you listen what do you to mean by um, that? you said casting stuff, Cassidy. Oh, Cassidy. Like, I'm well, a hustler. I'm, I'm a hustler. Right, of course. Oh, right. you listen to um his first album. Like, he's doing like all of these yeah. kind of like street, like mid art street rap knockoffs, like Young and I'm on his grind. I remember that one. Yeah. And then, and then he did the Say Yeah track, and that's when right. he kind of like flipped. Yeah, yeah. You kind of figure out like his formula. Yeah, it's yeah. funny because Young and on My Grind is very different than obviously the shit he's doing now. You know, which is kind of has a he definitely has a formula, you know, obviously. Um, but currency is like an interesting one because they kind of they were like an early, you know, pair together as far as like doing tours. And he was always in his their kind of that video blog thing that Wiz Khalifa did for a long time. Um, but currency in a way and I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say I know every album he did, you know, because I don't. Um, I don't think anybody. Does. <laughs> right. But the guy you got to give it to him for consistency alone because he, he has his market and it's very seems very faithful to him um but he still is kind of like a almost like a throwback to that like okay that mid-2000s okay i think so where he never went like way pop as far as like knowing that this is the formula like big sean obviously did you know and Wiz khalifa did and uh even mac miller you know to a degree you know so well i mean currency had a little bit of a different trajectory like he really, um, uh, he's a new one rapper. Right. Like, right, he's right, right. like, he's like a video game kid who right. wasn't in the streets, but say, but he's around street people. Right, right. You know, so he was on a little Wayne label, you know, and oh, that's right. That's he's right. doing like, where's the cash at and that kind of stuff. And then his blog rap come think long, and right. that kind of allows him to. To create a persona that's a little bit close to what it really is, right, right, which is more of like the alchemist, like yeah. stoner, you know, street stoners. Yeah, exactly, street stoners, which is a genre all into itself right now, too. Like, yeah, yeah, know, Action Bronson obviously is like the top of the heap of that, and alchemist. But. Well, Action Bronson is a top of the heap, in, maybe in terms of sales, but not in terms of right. quality. Right, right. right. <laughs> <laughs> I love to talk. What so? What trap shit are you are you like um, invested in as far as a writer? Have you been writing about it at all? Or you mean? I mean, trap is like as far as like the the most current artists of this year. As far as them putting records out, like because I have my guys that I follow, and I don't. I I'm more a fan of their music videos and their single songs. So I don't listen to any of the albums. Like I like Trippy Red and Ski Ski Mask, the Slump God, but that's you know as a journalist obviously there's i'm sure there's been you know people will pounce upon that to write about it because it's what because it just happens to be the current thing of this year too it's obviously the inverse of say what like um you know some of the albums that will top out you know a kendrick lamar but um i don't know i just wanted to get your take on it because it's you know, quality-wise, the writing obviously is very much like it's in a cycle. It's like every song is almost identically like lyrically. You know, um, do you fuck yeah. with it at all? Do you find anything redeemable about it as a writer? To be honest, I haven't dived too deeply into it. Like uh-huh. for me, 
one of the things I've been doing this year is like sort of rejuvenating, you know, my love affair with indie rap, you know, mm-hmm. like whether it's Quell Chris or I think John Wayne is doing some really interesting stuff with his author's recording label. And mm-hmm. I I just find that stuff more interesting at the moment. Danny Watts' album is interesting. Oh, I got to check that out. I you know, um, I... I I, I think with a lot of the, you know, second wave trap, emo rap, whatever you want to call it, like there's so much noise around that genre at this point. Right. And I feel like a lot of the noise isn't serious critical attention. It's more like, okay, these are the, this is what the kids are listening to. We better figure it out. Right. And they haven't necessarily figured it out yet, you right. know. Maybe next year they will, you know. But, I mean, for me, like... That's not what my strength is as a music writer. Like, where I'm do you not, find your strength as a writer? Well, I'm not. I'm not good at like trend mongering. You know, okay. like I'm not the guy that like finds the rapper that's going to be big right. two weeks before everybody right. else. Right. I'm the guy that like, you know, the rapper will come out and I'll be like, okay, what is this? Fit? You know, right. and I think what I do that other writers don't necessarily do is try to draw connections between what's happening now what happened 10 years ago what Mm -hmm. happened 20 years ago what happened 30 years ago context yeah I'm really good at context I would say that that's where my strength lies right I think with the book too um, that is like a really great um, tool for this notes on post-millennial rap which you self-published too if I'm not mistaken right yeah I did self-publish it is a kind of a limited edition item, right. and it's it's sold out. So don't ask for many copies. Right. Actually, I, have, well, I, I bought I, mine, so I'm good. You know what I'm saying? Like I bought this one right when you put it out. Actually, um, I do have a couple of copies left. But, okay, but um, but yeah, I mean, well, I just love to get your. I mean, for context, it's great because it's obviously it's in, it's in uh, in a good canon of of books that have that have sort of. There's not a lot of books like this, but there are some like you know. Uh, and some from back in the day, David Toops, you know, um, where they're, they're, they you can go back to them at any period of time. It's not really like stuck in one specific, uh, you know, thing. David Toops' rap attack was he was it was that was a big influence on the first section where right. I talk about old school rap up to 1987. One of the things I try to do that David Toops didn't do. Is David Toop was very focused on New York rap, right? From the late seventies to nineteen four, right? Like right. that's his sweet spot. And so what I try to do is I try to add information about old school West Coast hip hop, and not even like, not even the um, electro stuff, but a lot like. People don't know that Coolio recorded his first track in 1983. And oh, I didn't know that. So did, so did um, Kid Frost, Raza. He yeah. recorded his first tracks back then. What do those sound like? Are they like? Are they more on the electro side or less? Are they more Some of them are, but you know, Ice T, for example, he's pretty dismissive of his stuff before six in the morning. But if you listen to his tracks, like the coldest rap, right, right, like. He's still spitting that pimp street flow. Right. It's just not as explicit and violent as his famous six in the morning is. Oh, I try to like draw a connection between that early electro rap where there's still like some of that 
street element and the more famous, you know, NWA and 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 um, and Ice T kind of stuff. Right, right. And then the and then I also mentioned the Miami stuff, you know. Which is very important, especially talk about context. I mean, Miami now, as opposed to Miami thirty years ago, hip hop wise, you know, is is pretty interesting. Um, what but, about you know, what about Eminem? Well, <laughs> what about his new record? Have you listened to it? Oh yeah, it's good. Yeah, I have not. I haven't, I haven't listened to a record his in a minute. But uh, I'm. I love. I love nothing more than reading um, journalists. Um, takes on his stuff because like Pitchfork for example they just annihilate him every time he comes out you know you know the thing with Eminem's I write about the album Recovery and the thing about Recovery is it's one of the few it's one of the few albums that talks honestly about being you know addiction right. and, be- and recovering from- it's become over right. you know Which like is a, absolutely an and, important thing to talk about yeah. and I think I think there's, I think the album has a lot to offer as far as themes. Right. Maybe his lyrical performance isn't as good as it was during his salad days of you know 1998 to 2002. But I think thematically, it's probably one of the more interesting albums of this decade. Just mm. as instead of sort of sliding into right. you know. Emo rap where he's just whining about how high he is. He kind of like yeah. actually struggles with his issues. He does that, and then Kid Cudi, obviously, he's put out a couple of albums like that. But it's really rare in rap where you kind of say, "Okay, I'm not, I'm not going to just promote the party life. I'm actually going to talk about sort of the consequences of that." Right, right. But why do you think the press just like destroy him every time he comes out? Is it just a, he's just an easy target? Right? He's an easy target, and you know. I mean, I think a lot. I think some of it is backlash. You know, I mean, Rolling Stone back in two thousand and three did this cover called "The Genius of Eminem," and I mean, you know, it's. I mean, the the press is so on to him for so long, and then when he came back with relapse, you know, like the culture just moved on. And, right. And they didn't know where to fit him, you know. And also, he's a provocateur. He says a lot of provocative things. Right. We could have a whole debate about, you know, you know whether it's problematic or whether he's playing a character. But I think the um, the press hasn't really figured that out, you know. Like, it's problematic to use misogynist language. It's problematic to use homophobic language, you know. And he spent a good part of his career like he spent most of his career doing that you know now we could have an, we could have a debate about you know the fact why he did it and whether that has led to artistic artistically credible music that expresses in it in American society that doesn't necessarily get admitted to you know right and I think that's part of the power of his music but I don't think the press is really ready to have that conversation. Right. Do you think um, you would write another book? Yeah, definitely. I mean, are you working on one? <laughs> I mean, I don't mean to put you on on blast like that. No, no. I mean, I've definitely I have some things I'm, yeah. I'm developing. So, what? How how is this process for you? I mean, obviously, writing um, you know multiple pieces like this and and publishing it. Well, I mean, just I would love to know. The, your experience with it, just the process of it, was it, 
a pain in the ass? I mean, it must have been a little bit, right? Like, um, well, there were some design issues, okay. and I mean, I'm not blaming the designer; she did an amazing job. But there were some glitches in terms of what I wanted, and I didn't communicate that sure. properly. Oh, it's more like that kind of stuff, like just right. constructing it. But but the workload, like I yeah, mean, the pieces. I mean, they're all previously published pieces. Nice. The, um, the section I have on Hip Hop 101, which spans from 1979 to uh, 1987, those were published on Rhapsody, uh-huh. and then a lot of the other stuff is published. Was published in like Span and Rolling Stone. Right. Right. Nice. Yeah. I would love to talk too, just more about. Um, just where the other spots that you've written for, because you've been you to me like you've kind of uh, you know you represent a very certain kind of music journalist where you've uh, worked and contributed to you know countless places. So and when I was in it, when I was in the trenches, and this was a while ago, because I I basically would shift over into like putting records out and. And then booking tours, working as an agent and as a manager. But, you know, I went to school for journalism. My, my heart is really in writing and read, and I love to read other journalists, too. I just I really get a kick out of that. But I know that what the grind was like back when I was really deep in it. So how do you, I mean, first, I, I'd love to know, like, just how you've managed that over the years, too. Because it's tough to make a living doing it. And It is tough. <laughs> right, right. That goes without saying. Um, and just like, you know, because obviously you've, you came out of the print industry, which is by and large, it's, it's, it's changed dramatically. It's, it's shrunk. Well, it's almost non-existent. Exactly. So, so I mean, from getting gigs to, to keeping like active too, cause you've also like had your own couple of blogs too, websites too. So is there a way in a nutshell to kind of like yeah sorry to know after you but Pete you know R.I.P. to DJ Staff who absolutely who passed away in September and she did she she worked with me on my um, plug one mag blog which is which is which, I mean it's still up but it's defunct you but, know, but, but people can go back to yeah that, people right? can go back to that and what, I didn't she has she some she has some that. banners on there dope dope what an amazing friend and just like the People like Steph are, they're very few and far between in this business. Who's really, she's a writer at her, she was a writer at her heart. I mean, Vinyl Exchange was a great zine and un- unbelievable. Yeah. And, a, and yet somehow a trade magazine at the same time. And I tried to, you know, I, I, I tried to get her to do some stuff too, you know. Like, right. Yeah. Did she, did she contribute some stuff? No, she didn't. I mean, she, you know, she kind of, she kind of transitioned and just being um, a designer at right. a certain point but yeah I mean I try to get her some gigs at different places oh we're, oh amazing um, well yeah so plug, plug One was that was that evolved into what there's another one called Critically Minded right yeah I mean Critical Minded is just me like kind of publishing some of the pieces that I've done over the years that aren't available anymore right I mean obviously you know if I had like 80 hours in a day, like I would make it into something bigger than that. Maybe it will be that. But for right now, it's just kind of archive some of the better pieces. One piece, for example, that I did was on um, the era of 80s black music between like 1981 and 1987. And one thing people don't know about that era is, is like a cultural apartheid, you know, between 1982 and 1982. 
three until okay. Michael Jackson came out. Like there were no black sing- singers on who made who topped the charts. Really? Yeah, zero. And there were only ew, black music albums that topped charts. It was like what were those? Prince and Michael Jackson. Right, right. So then this piece is about exploring the records that came out that weren't uh, well, chart toppers or what? Well, what it does is it explores... Back then, if you were a black artist and you managed to actually get something that sold in platinum or double platinum numbers, you were called a crossover artist. Right. And oh, what I do is... What I did is I talk about that whole crossover phenomenon and... and um, Oh, interesting. Yeah, you know, it's 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 an it's an era that's forgotten now. You know. Well, it's interesting too. I would say like Dame Funk is a pretty good, an interesting example of sort of resurrecting or sharing the music of this of of not exclusively of those few years, but a lot of what would be the 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 bed of modern funk, quote, which is a, a genre really he pioneered, which really is you know revisiting a lot of these great like i guess funk and r&b albums if you had to be deductive about it is now is this what is that the direction you're going with it or you is this- well this i mean if the story that i wrote is a little bit more expansive but uh-huh. just going into dame funk one of the brilliant things that he does is he resurrects that early 80s era when you could turn on a black music station and you would hear craft work right. you might hear some yellow magic orchestra you know, as well as hearing like you know the smooth, the smooth jams by the Whispers, right. and like it was this whole dynamic mix of music. Like, did as long as it fit into a certain paradigm. Like, I remember when Dame Funk used to play "Messages from the Stars." Of course, yeah. like those tracks got played on black music radio. Like, it's unthinkable now. Like, you know, now it's just like hip hop and R and B, and that's it. I know, know, but, which is, but so it wasn't like it wasn't like that back then. Like right. I discovered Kraftwerk on KSOL, which is like a black music station. You oh, know, like in they, I remember watching Magic Number Video, which was this video show based out of San. Oh, and they would play like you know, um, um, A E A E I O U. Remember that song? No, what was you like? It's Arthur Baker produced oh, track. Okay, right, right. Of course. IOU. Yeah. Like, they would play that, you know? And, and there's like all the synth pop, and they would play like, they would play like, you know, Culture Club. And it was just like, it was just, it was right. such a dynamic view of pop music, you know? And oh, when Dame Funk does his thing, he's coming from that era right, where like right. his basis, yes, is the electro funk. Right, but well, if he's, born, he's coming. He's, he's coming from a. He's coming. Um, An African Mambada said this too. When hip hop, hip hop is just the way to the world. Right, it's not a way to shut yourself off the world. Yeah, that's a great point. Oh, when you look at hip hop, you're looking at you know certain aspects of country music. You're looking at like certain aspects of like experimental classical music, mm-hmm. like you know music concrete. You know, looking at rock music. But it's all coming from that view, you know? And so that's absolutely. what Dave Funk does. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that lends itself to, like, such a great conversation about music during that period of time where, say, if you were born in the late 60s or early 70s and you were going to shows um, in the early 80s, I mean, I mean, maybe, I guess it doesn't truly matter when you were born, but if you were really 
actively buying albums or going to concerts or discos or clubs during that period of time and, and through the 80s, I feel like, where blacks and whites and everyone in between sort of was, there was a much more, like, it seemed like there was more of a general kinship, like pre-MTV, where the programming um, of, we weren't as programmed where people could freely go into a record store and... Um, I mean, I'm, this is just riffing off the top of my head. I know that there's there's something there where it's a little less regimented. It's a little less segregated in some ways, even though well, the, country, the dance music scene right. was much more of a dynamic music scene. Yeah. Now the mainstream was very segregated, and I mean MTV didn't play. You know, they didn't really get behind a black music video until Michael Jackson's Billie Jean and. The only reason why they did that is because Columbia threatened to pull all of their artists if they didn't do it. You right. know, and one of the things I'm one of the points I made in my aforementioned piece is that these crossover artists were not underground artists. It wasn't like right, right. It, it, you know, they had huge label resources behind them, right? Because the radio and label industry tended to view things in okay, you're in a black music section or you're in a pop music section. Even with so, even with huge financial resources, they still had a lot of trouble breaking through to the mainstream. Now that's one side of it. Right. The other side of it is dance music, which was going through this crazy post-disco era where people were just experimenting with synthesizers and learning how to use computers, and that's where you see a lot of the dynamism as, as people of different races working together, like just making these great tracks. Right. Do you think, and you basically grew up in the Bay, so do you, did you feel like, like when, what was like your first experiences going out and seeing music? Like, you know, um, the first concert I saw was Teddy Pendergrass. Uh, hey. Like, that was like 1981 or 80, um, just before the car crashed. I was like, wow. but, yeah, but yes, of course. this was at the Circle Star Theater, and yeah. I mean, I didn't like it. Like, it was just constant screaming. Like, the uh-huh. women were just screaming throughout the whole show and right. throwing panties on the stage. And right. I just spent, like, most of the time, like, cupping my hands over my ears. <laughs> now, this first show that actually made an impact on me was in Luther Vandross and the Barge. And uh-huh. Luther Vandross, when he walked down the aisle, like, he was handing out balloons to the crowd and... Like, they had these little set pieces on stage, like, you know, like, you know, David Bowie or something. Where like, you would, and actually, you know, we know he worked with David Bowie, but right. they had, like, they would put, like, you know, like, club tables on the stage, and they pretend like nice. they're sitting at the club, you know, like, just in, it was, yeah. like, it was, it was very cute. And, yeah. I mean, that was, that was an amazing show for me. That's probably, like, the first, real, that's the show that stands out for me. Um, rest that's in peace with the Vandross. Absolutely. So then you must have seen some pretty early seminal hip hop shows in the Bay then too. No, not really. I mean, were you just doing you were just doing the R and B shows as a young man. Is that what it was? Or well, no. You know, the thing with me is, I'm much more. I mean, I like going to concerts, and I mean, I've seen some great concerts in my I'm day. Sure, um, I'm sure. But I guess for me, as um, a music writer. You know, music thinker, like, it's always been much more about the recordings. Mm-hmm. Like, I, I tend to focus much more on that. Having said that, like, I mean, I remember seeing 
I remember seeing like Hubert and and I don't even, I don't know if you knew about this group. Oh, I don't think so. Back in the day, Cuber and Hello and Mixed Match Mike formed the Scratch Pickles. They were called the Rocksteady DJs. And when they were called the Rocksteady DJs, they had this rap group called F-Duo. Oh, wow. And I used to go to college with one of the rappers in F-Duo. And so, yeah, I went and saw them at like this heavy metal club called the Stone Pony. And we had to like sit the there. Pony? Yeah. And we had to sit there and like listen to these really horrible rock bands play for about two hours. Huh. And there was like this weird video of Jello Biafra's gosh, it's one of like his weird like side projects, but like, you mm-hmm. know it's like I don't know, it, whatever. So so yeah, so then so then like like FM two O got on stage and like there's three days he is and they're all scratching and then the rappers are going and then, then like, then they had some B-Boys come out and B-Boy, and, like, yeah, that was... Impressive, man. That was amazing. Yeah. That was amazing. Yeah. No, I love it. I just like trying to get some context. So, because of the amount of stuff that you've covered over the years, obviously, it's informed by your own personal experiences. I mean, yes, you can take on any assignment and then kind of get a little deeper macro with it, but um, we all come from somewhere and have, like, these, like, kind of really early impressionable things that sort of uh you know set the tone for you know a, a forming opinions and that you know we kind of like hone as a writer at least like for your whole life basically so um yeah i'm just interested in it because we've known each other for such a long time and granted i haven't right. seen you in a long ass time yeah <laughs> but we've run in the same circles for years and know and have covered a lot of the same artists too um and I know that I don't personally have a ton of time today, so I'm I'm just thrilled that you were able to. I was able to catch you here in New York because I've been wanting to talk to you since I started the podcast too. No, thank you. Yeah, of course, absolutely, man. And the fact that you're just, um, uh, you know, keeping in there and getting, you know, and just continuing to write is, uh, it's dope, man. I, I think it's inspiring too because uh, it's not an easy career, you know. It's challenging. No, it's not. I mean, it's challenging just to stay engaged, right? Yeah, it is. You know, I think liking other kinds of music is important. Of course. You know, um, if I get burned out of hip-hop, then I'll listen to, like, indie... I mean, I've been listening to indie rock lately, you know, and... and What rock uh, records? Any contemporary stuff from this year, too, or what? I mean, nothing... I mean, I listen to King... I like King Cruel album. I like... Right. I like... You know, even a Phoenix album, it's very ephemeral, but, like, I like it. It's... Uh, well, you know, some of those groups now, mer- they're starting to pull from other genres, too. I mean, their music is informed. You know who I fuck with? It's interesting because he said King Cruel is the guys that opened up for him on this past tour, uh, Standing on the Corner, which is an incredible okay. group from, from Bro- here in Brooklyn, yeah, that um, uh, supported his last tour. It's like kind of cut-and-paste, sample-heavy, I guess you'd call it hip-hop. It's like an MF Doom interlude or something like that, but it's really dope. But he obviously, he's... You know, a hip hop head too can cruel if you would call. I mean, if you can still say that term, but no, no, definitely. I mean, there's, I mean, there's a lot of hip hop elements on that album. There's a whole lineage of of British singers using the poetry. I mean, if you want to even go back to John Cooper Clark, you know, like guys that are used talking is sort of a way to create this very baroque, morose 
British music, you know. Right. And there's a whole Robert Wyatt. That's another one, right? No, Robert Wyatt is one from the uh, jazz fusion. He was right. part of the Soft Machine. Right. He has this one song called "Pigs" that I always liked. It's sort of like that spoken word okay. style. But I mean, we can riff on so many tangents. That's what I. I mean, that's why I love that. And hopefully, if possible, we can maybe. Um, if I'm in the Bay again, or if you got the next book or whatever, we can do another one of these too, man. If you're down. I mean, that would be awesome. I've, yeah. I've, I always love talking about. Me. Yeah, I love listening to it, man. Cool. So thank you so much too for your time, man. I appreciate it, Mosi. Thank you. All right, peace, man. Yo, 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 yo. Thanks to Mosi for swinging through. We recorded this conversation in Brooklyn, New York. He's from the Bay, as you have learned in this conversation. If you didn't already know. Uh, it's not too late to subscribe to the podcast, so do it while you can. I really appreciate it. Um, on any means, do it on SoundCloud, uh, which is the Houseless Podcast. You can follow us at Twitter at Houseless Pod for more updates and all of that. Thanks so much. Every episode, you know, edited by CJ. Shout out to him, and I appreciate your guys' time as always. I know there's a lot of different music podcasts out there on the heap, in the weeds. But you take a couple minutes to listen to mine every once in a while, and I really appreciate it. It's all self-produced. It's a very DIY type of thing, and I handpick each and every guest. So uh, thanks again. I appreciate it, and I'll see you guys on the next one. Peace, y'all.